right. The Foghorn says it is time for the Cavish Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, the world's largest Navy now has 355 ships. The bad news? It belongs to China. That's according to the latest edition of the Pentagon's annual report on Chinese military power a document full of examples of the much faster than expected rise of what the Pentagon calls its number one pacing threat. We'll discuss the report with Naval Analyst Thomas Shugart from the Center for New American Security. But first, a quick roundup of Naval news around the world. The top three leaders of the submarine USS Connecticut were fired from their jobs November 4th after the commander of the U.S. 7th Fleet lost confidence in their abilities. The ship's commanding officer, executive officer, and chief of the boat were relieved of their duties, and other officers were penalized as well. The move came after the Navy on November 1st issued a terse statement that the submarine's collision on October 2nd, while submerged in the South China Sea, was the result of hitting an uncharted seamount. The submarine, meanwhile, remains at Guam, undergoing temporary repairs before heading home to Bremerton, Washington, for full repairs. Meanwhile, three U.S. Navy ships are now operating in the Black Sea, while they'll take part in a series of exercises. The destroyer Porter was first in on October 30th, followed by the oiler John Lenthal on November 3rd and the Sixth Fleet flagship Mount Whitney on the 4th. At the same time, the Russian Black Sea Fleet was carrying out a series of exercises, including two Kilo-class submarines simulating caliber missile launches against what the TASS news agency called a group of notional enemy warships. A strange incident came to light on November 3rd when Iranian television put out a story with video of an interaction between the U.S. destroyers, the Sullivans, and Michael Murphy, with a large number of small, fast, Revolutionary Guard fast boats swarming the destroyers and a large Iranian oil tanker. Iran claimed the U.S. was trying to steal the oil. The Pentagon flatly denied the Iranian version of events, calling them bogus and ridiculous. The incident apparently took place October 24th in the Gulf of Oman, outside of the Persian Gulf. Analysis by the group TankerTrackers.com seemed to confirm the U.S. version of events and speculated the incident was staged by Iran to embarrass the United States. Construction of China's big Type 3 aircraft carrier continues at a rapid pace at a shipyard near Shanghai. The ship's island superstructure was landed by crane around November 3rd, and it appears the carrier will be launched during 2022. Also in Japan, the German frigate Bayern arrived in Tokyo Bay November 4th, a major stop in the ship's six-month deployment to the Western Pacific. The visit to Tokyo, which began November 5th, is the first German naval visit to Japan since about 2001. And that's a quick look at naval news this week. All right. We are to the part of the show where we get into a larger discussion. And as we mentioned at the top earlier this week, the Department of Defense released its annual China report. And joining us to talk about the maritime elements of that report and what it means is Tom Shugart, Tom is an adjunct senior fellow with the defense program at the Center for New American Security. Uh, His focus is on undersea warfare and maritime competition. Uh, Tom served for over 25 years in the Navy, where he last worked in the DOD's Office of Net Assessment. He served as a submarine warfare officer during his time in uniform and was the CEO of the fast attack submarine USS Olympia. 
Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. So, Tom, first off, um, you know, this is a report that comes out every year. Um, you, you know, folks tend to, uh, to, to look for it for big picture uh, takeaways. What were your big picture takeaways from a naval standpoint in this year's report? Well, I think uh, one of the big ones that's you know, pretty obvious and hard to miss is that the scale of expansion and pace of expansion of the PLA Navy continues to, if anything, accelerate. Um, we had predictions from the Office of Naval, I assume they're from the Office of Naval Intelligence um, uh, that in, on, in terms of the future size of the PLA Navy, and that went up significantly from the most recent open source ones that I know of, which were given to the Congressional Research, Research Service in 2020. Um, so significant bumps uh, in the expected size of the PLA Navy in 2025 and 2030, up to uh, 425, I believe, and 460 by, uh, by 2030. So, so if anything, an acceleration of the rate of expansion of the PLA Navy. Uh, we also saw they achieved the 355 ship number, which was one that was kind of a magic number for the U.S. side a few years ago at the beginning of the uh, last administration. And uh, never got anywhere near that, but appears the PLA Navy uh, has, has managed to get there uh, in the time since then. Um, so, so scale is one thing. Um, we have uh, a, a additional focus on anti-submarine warfare discussed in the report. Uh, I think anybody who's been paying attention uh, to the individual capabilities that the PLA Navy has been rolling out in recent years in terms of the number of modern surface combatants that now have total rays and modern uh, hull-mounted sonars, as well as helicopters and ASW uh, weapons, uh, in addition to the advent of their first fixed-wing ASW aircraft and their deployment of uh, sound surveillance ships. No surprise there that, that those are coming together into what is now a specific new mention in the report of improving uh, Chinese ASW capabilities. You know, that's, that's been an area of known weakness uh, for the PLA Navy for ever, basically. Um, but they certainly seem to have recognized it and are, are taking action to, uh, to deal with it. Uh, the last thing I'd say in terms of uh, things that were notable uh, in the report for not so much PLA Navy, but matter for the maritime realm, is just a sheer number of missiles, again, that the PLA Rocket Force is deploying. Um, you know, last year's report said 200 plus or 200 launchers for the DF-26, uh, which is a dual capable land or anti-ship uh, intermediate range ballistic missile, uh, but left to the imagination how many missiles might be available for those launchers. It just said 200 plus. This year, we have a firm number of 300 uh, missiles available. So that's quite a change in a relatively short period of time. I think most folks uh, in our Navy or folks that watched um, that competition probably had in their for, in their minds for some time something like dozens of DF-21 uh, and a ship ballistic missiles that the, our, our Navy might have to deal with in, West, in the Western Pacific. Now we're talking about not dozens, but hundreds of potential and a ship ballistic missiles. Um, so not really PLA Navy, but certainly maritime power. So let, let me follow up and then I'll throw it to Chris because, um, you, you know, uh, particularly on the ASW front. Um, that's something that Chris and I have talked about um, many times, uh, you know, when we kind of look at China um, and uh, the capability in, in the area. So I'll, I'll let him dive deeper into that. Um, how good are these ships? Uh, you know, I mean, there, there are words thr thrown around in, in here, but I mean, you, you know, I, I think that those folks in our country that try to 
um, you know, try to wipe this away or, 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 or try to make themselves feel better, you, you know, say, Hey, well, look, they, yes, they are the largest Navy in the world, but I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're building way too fast and we just don't know how good these ships are. Um, I mean, your, your sense of if, if that's a legitimate argument and uh, your sense of not only the speed in which they're um, building the ships, but they're also deploying these ships right away, right? I mean, it's not like in, in our Navy where we build them and, you know, they take years to, to test and, you know, they go back in and do more, more maintenance before they go on their deployment. I mean, the Chinese build these ships and they send them out on around the region or around the world deployments, which not only has... Uh, you know, a benefit in terms of proficiency, but it, it, it sends a message uh, to the region and to their allies elsewhere. Can you talk a little bit ab about just how good the ships are and how good their Navy is? Well, I, what I would say is that we don't have any clear reason to think that they're better on an individual basis than ours are, but I also don't see any real reason to think that they're much worse. Um, I mean, if you look at, like, let's look at the Renhai Cruiser, for example, I, think, I believe it's 112 VLS cells. I mean, as far as I can tell, the missiles that are in those cells work. Um, they seem to have plenty of exercises um, that you hear about. Uh, so I, you know, I assume they're using them and practicing with them. Uh, you, know, you regularly hear about large scale exercises happening in the South China Sea or in the Yellow Sea, or you hear about closure areas. Um, so I can only assume that those, these things are being robustly tested. Um, you know, and ultimately, I think one, you know, one of your big tests for a Navy is just, can you go out to sea and stay there and go places and do things? I mean, that's about 80% of the, you know, like I would say a Navy operates in peacetime much closer to what it does in wartime than almost any of the other armed forces. And about 80% of the battle is just getting there and staying out there. And if, you know, one other thing in that report that was mentioned, uh, was that, was that they did a 41 day uh, attack one of their task forces did a 41 day uh, deployment out to the area waters near Hawaii. I mean, that's a long way away from home. That's several thousand miles uh, from China, and that's an extended period of time to be out there. So that's you know that's I don't I just don't have anything to point at to say they're not good at what they do. Chris, um, uh, Chris, Chris Cavas here. So it, w when you look at this Navy and the the fleet that they're they're building which certainly looks like what a classically classic balanced fleet um, with large numbers of different surface combatants and amphibious ships and support ships, logistics ships, and different types of submarines. They don't concentrate on, on one particular type. Um, and it's really their model seems to be the United States Navy over the past 70 years or so. Um, it, they're not building tons of submarines. Which, which seems to, which strikes me as interesting, that they're not necessarily aimed at us. They're an offensive Navy, like you said, they're full of missile tubes. Uh, they're a blue water Navy. They've made immense investment in these large, very capable support ships, which we're not doing anymore. We used to, and we're not. What do you make of that? I mean, I just think it's, it's robust investment on their part. They're because you're right, it, it is it is a very well balanced force. You know, there are some folks out there who think that oh well, it's just a it's still at its heart just a coastal defense navy, and they just don't have the legs that we do. Well, if you go do the math, and I did, if you go run the numbers and say, all right, well, how many uh, oilers do they have in proportion to the rest of their fleet? You know, do they have do they have 
a similar proportion, and they have almost exactly the same proportion. They have, ju- you know, just as many oilers per per ship as we do. Right. Um, so there, again, there again is no indication that they're not a full-on open ocean blue water navy. Um, what I would say about submarines is that what'll be interesting to watch in the future, and because you're right, they haven't built. Uh, some, you know, large numbers of nuclear submarines, for example. But the word I would add to that is yet. So we've seen in a number of different areas where they keep poking around and trying different designs. And then when they get to one that really works, then they really put their put their pedal to the floor and start cranking it out. And, and maybe they're just not quite there yet with, uh, with their, particularly their nuclear submarine designs. I think there's probably a recognition on their part. I mean, heck, Owen, I said it. Uh, out loud in 2015 that their, sub, their nuclear submarines are loud. And so they're certainly got to know that. So what's interesting is that they have a brand new uh, uh, nuclear submarine shipyard that they just finished building and are just starting to go into production. In. And it'll be interesting to see when they have their next class of nuclear submarines, the Type 95, Type 96, that if they arrive at that point where they go, okay, this one's good enough, let's start mass producing as they've done with the DF-26, as they've done with the H-6K bomber, as they've done with the Type 52 destroyers. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. So to, to their credit, I mean, they've, they've put an awful lot of investment into infrastructure. So they've built up their bases, the submarine bases, um, caves, uh, an awful lot of investment there, as well as the supporting ships, the fleet train. Um, but all this in massive, intense development comes with a cost. So you don't have people who've been in the Navy for 25 or 30 years driving ships. Um, you have some, but proportionally very, very few. Um, when you're building 10 of a class at one time and they're not replacing older ships, they're entering service, they're adding to your numbers. Um, you need to train all those crews. You need to find all those senior enlisted people. You need to find the mid-level officers. You need to find the commanding officers. You need to uh, come up with a, a logistics system that can handle all that. Um, this, in, this incredible growth. It, it strikes me as interesting that people never talk about that. I don't, I don't think we know much about that. I mean, either, either, either nobody wants to, to look at that because it's not fun. It's not sexy. It doesn't have a, have a big headline. But you just have to wonder what are the how are they getting around that problem? We did that by by having mass in, in World War II by having incredibly intense training programs in our buildup, and it, it was it was it was it was terribly impressive. Um, how how are they doing that? How, how do you think? I, I don't I don't think we really know. I mean, I but I. Uh, we don't have any indication that they're being unsuccessful in, in right. continuing to man those ships. I mean, they are they are retiring. It's the thing that's impressive about their building is they are retiring older ships. I mean, they're you know like their older Luhu class destroyers gone. Um, their older, really older Zhanghu um, one frigates gone. I mean, so they are not afraid to retire older ships. They are, but they are smart about at times uh, taking some of the more capable ones and retrofitting. Uh, advanced weapons of keeping them, for example, their um, their, so, so their older, older sovereignty class destroyers. Um, so, so they seem to be making it happen one way or the other. I mean, it, certainly when it comes to what you mentioned, Chris, about about uh, you know our World War II training programs, that example to me is one of those reasons why I don't take great comfort 
in the idea that, well, they just can't keep up with, you know, they won't be able to train fast enough for the expansion or they don't have enough people. I mean, we had, you know, World War II, we, out of a national population of something like 120, 130 million people, we built in three or four years a Navy of thousands of ships uh, and millions of sailors. Uh, you know, at the end of the war, 95 plus percent of the officer corps hadn't been in the Navy when the war started. So I don't draw a great deal of comfort of, well, they just won't be able to man those ships when you're talking about a nation of 1.4 billion people. That is, that is also, by the way, the, you know, the world's premier maritime power, maritime power by almost any other measure. I mean, they have a huge seafaring population now, uh, much larger than ours is. And then, like, if you go, go back and read Mahan, read Mahan's, what he says the characteristics of a great maritime power are, and they just check them off one by one. One of those is the seafaring population. So that's, that's that, that's that reserve that you draw from in, in developing true durable naval power, uh, which they have the roots to develop uh, over time. And I fear that we've lost. We also don't hear I mean, a lot about their technical problems. There are some areas where we do hear a lot about, which is uh, gas turbines, uh, high performance jet engines for aircraft. Mm -hmm. they, they have chronic problems in those areas. Uh, oddly, they have chronic problems. But in many areas, we don't hear much about it. So you have, for example, you, you said they're the Renhai cruisers, destroyer cruisers, 12,000 ton destroyers, type 055. Um, they're building like 10 of those right now, something like that. There's, there's the, the th I think a third, the third one just entered service just now. And the problem with that, and, and they're building them in two shipyards. And when we do anything like that, I mean, every kind of, you know, now it's become a, a, a song. Well, first of class issues. Well, what can you expect? You have all kinds of, of issues in terms of uh, schedule delay and entry into service and all kinds of technical problems. We, there, there is no class of ship that we've new, new class of ship we've produced that's gone right easily into service for decades. Um, everything has problems and we're not alone. I, I mean, the, in, in Europe, you, you look at the, British Navy, the, uh, the Germans, all kinds of people have all kinds of very serious problems. And yet one must assume they're having some kinds of problems, but they're just charging ahead with numbers and speed. And, and you, I mean, I mean, do, do you have any sense of what's, what's going on behind those things? For example, right now, now they're building the type 075 amphibious assault ships, you know, just about 40,000 tons. They've never operated anything like that. Um, our first of class ships have had a number of problems, even though we've been doing that for as long as they've been around. Um, they're just crashing forward with them. You sort of wonder, how are they doing this? What are they doing that we're not? Well, I mean, some of it may be that we're just not hearing, we aren't hearing about problems that they're having because you know, they, do, they don't have a free press. Um, it is an authoritarian system. You know, bad news is not something that, that uh, you know, they like to trumpet. Um, so it could be that they're having problems. And I'm sure they are having, you know, issues here and there with, with the introduction uh, of their of new, these new classes of ships. Uh, it, but at the same time, I just don't have anything to point to as well. Look, they're terrible at what they do out there. Right. Um, right. You know, they seem to go to sea and stay out to sea. They seem to go out and and do their sea trials and complete them. And they seem to they seem to be moving forward. I mean, I, I guess maybe, you know, there there have been times where uh, 
you know, the problems got to the point that it couldn't be hidden from us, you know, for example, when they had one of their submarines that had a, some sort of uh, awful, um, I think it was a atmosphere control issue that killed dozens of the, of the, the basically the entire crew. Oh, the Ming, um, the Ming that's yeah, years yeah, ago. an older, older submarine. So, you know, it may, it may, it may be that a problem has to get that bad for us to really hear about it. Um, you know, we did, they did have a, they did have one of their, their new, those new type 75s had a fire in the shipyard. Um, yeah, but they, that they put the fire quickly and painted over and roared right ahead. It didn't, yeah, seem, it didn't seem like it held them up much at all. Um, so, so maybe, you know, it may be that the problems have to get to that point where, you, you know, there's visible flames of damage or people get killed for us to really be cognizant of them. Uh, but I mean, just the overall tenor is that they are moving forward. And, you know, some of it could be that, I mean, one thing I certainly think about, about our uh, system in this day and age is that I just think that we have um, an insufficient view of risk assessment and that risk assessment tends to be programmatic and you know, closer to uh, right now than looking at the broader risk to the na our national geopolitical um, uh, standing from not moving forward with, with programs that can make a real difference. You know, when I, like when I hear things about, oh, well, you know, these uh, intermediate range missiles that we're building, well, we don't have anywhere to put them right now. Well, that's the kind of thing maybe you figure out during wartime. Um, or when I hear about, well, we don't have, you know, we don't have fully fleshed out exactly how we're going to do the targeting for this or that, or exactly how we're going to, um, to do the you know, autonomy for this or that system. Well, you know, we may not figure some of that stuff out until, and quite frankly, we should have some humility and, and know that whatever it is that we think we know about how things are going to go is not how it's going to happen. Um, based on the historical record and just move forward. Because if you put something out there that looks like, it, even if it's not perfect, if it looks like it's got some decent capability that they have to worry about, then they've got to respect the threat. So I think we're too cautious in that regard. Maybe they're just more risk accepted than we are. It seems the theme, the, the running theme in this new report is that they're coming along a lot faster than we had earlier assessed. I was talking to a carrier admiral a few days ago uh, about, uh, the videos that you see that the Chinese put out of their flight deck operations on the new carriers, their, 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 their new carriers, um, and how similar that, that looks to ours. I mean, like they've been studying us for a long, long, long time. And every role on that flight deck, they seem to have, have, have really studied and broken down and trained and, and are putting them out. And I asked him what he thought about that when he sees this, because it looks an awful lot like an American carrier. And he said, you know, they've just come along a whole lot faster than, 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 than we thought they had. And two years ago, he wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought they'd be where they are, but they are coming up fast anyway. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems to be a, a recurring theme over and over and over again, um, that we continue to underestimate how, how quickly they're moving uh, and how quickly they're advancing. Now, you know, maybe... Maybe they're a paper tiger. Maybe there's maybe the capability really isn't there. Maybe they fall apart in combat. But I just, you know, I, I just think it's interesting that, um, you know, as a CO, you're expected to have the most conservative way of looking at things that could go wrong, and and to and to assess the risks of your own failure conservatively. And yet we have, you know, folks oftentimes in strategic positions that are just hoping for the best, which would be completely unacceptable at the, at the O5 command level. Uh, but sometimes it seems in higher levels of authority, it's okay to just uh, 
you know, maybe this won't turn out so badly. Well, Tom, those are, you've got some pretty sobering comments about this and uh, uh, we, we, we commend everybody to check out your Twitter feed from yesterday, also full of sobering and intelligent observations of this report. Um, we thank you for uh, coming on board today and appreciate your insight. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. And I, I'd encourage, uh, you know, don't, folks don't have to just read my thread. Feel free to go read the report. I mean, it's, it's quite informative. So appreciate the, the chance to talk. Okay. Thanks for being here. Now hear this. Now hear this. Well, you know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And now Chris Cavus shares his thoughts on failures to communicate. The Pentagon's annual report on Chinese military power is one of the key documents spelling out specific challenges from what U.S. military leaders routinely call their number one pacing threat. Theoretically, the document is meant to give busy lawmakers and policymakers a solid understanding of the challenge China's rise presents to the United States. The report is chock full of stark statements and numbers and addresses more than a dozen topic areas. Nominally, it should be a key element in Capitol Hill's understanding of the situation. The problem is it's simply not a very presentable or readable report. In gray page after gray page, there is no sense of presentation to grab the eye. The intended audience, everyone in Congress, is frantically busy with any number of issues demanding their attention every day. Dozens of reports are issued every week, and most of them go largely unread. The trick is to make your report stand out, to convey information without demanding someone sit down and actually read 192 pages. Once upon a time, the Pentagon knew how to do this, and they did it very well. In the early 1980s, a slick, lavishly illustrated publication replete with easy-to-understand graphics and charts was produced to underpin the Reagan administration's huge military buildup. Titled Soviet Military Power, the magazine-style report was not slim, usually around 140 to 150 pages, but it was easy to read. Anyone flipping through the report for about 10 minutes could come away with a pretty good understanding of the scope and breadth of the Soviet military threat, at least according to the Pentagon. It was a well-produced, outstanding piece of propaganda, and it worked. Those annual Soviet military power reports did a lot to convince lawmakers of both parties to support the buildup, which led directly to the fall of the Soviet Union. I don't know if the Chinese threat is the same as that of the old USSR, but I do know the folks who put together this report on Chinese military power can do a vastly better job. The way it is now, it looks like someone, it looks like something that someone will take a look at, says I'll read it later when I have time, and then never does. That simply is not going to get it done. All right. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian for his support, as well as to the Fincantieri Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.